1972 in Uganda, Idi Amin gave Ugandan Asians 90 days to leave the country, allowing them to take only 50 pounds and leave everything else behind to be redistributed. Many fled to Britain, having British passports from pre-independence, to Canada and India, spreading a community across the world. This is a piece of family history for Nima Shah, yet she found it hadn't been told in literature and that many people didn't even know that it had happened. Kalola Hill is her contribution in changing that, her debut novel, which Megan Thomas babbles with her about today, covering themes of identity, home, and how a family rebuilds itself when they're left with nothing but their secrets. everyone, I'm Megan Thomas and I'm on Babble today to chat with author Nima Shah. I have spent the last week completely absorbed in her debut novel, Kololo Hill, and I can't wait for all of you to be able to read it. It's out next week on the 18th of February. We won't have too many spoilers, don't worry, but we'll definitely talk about it in a way that I hope everyone rushes out to either pre-order or set a calendar reminder to buy it when it comes out. Uh, hi, Nima. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm good as well as well as you can be really in lockdown, I suppose. So yeah, all good. Where are you locked down? I'm in London at the moment, so all fun games. I mean, to be honest, the weather being the way it is, it's not that much of a hardship <laughs> because I think <laughs> we've had loads of rain. We're going to have snow, just the usual sort of London. But weather, good. I can't complain really. The kind of way that actually that's quite nice to look out the window at, but yeah, not have to be exactly. in or sludge through. I feel like that about snow, definitely. <laughs> How has the lockdown been affecting your work and your writing? Um, yeah, I mean, I have a, a day job in marketing as well. And strangely enough, actually, I wrote Colello Hill on my commute to work. Obviously, I'm not commuting now. Um, so I have found it a bit easier because I get sort of 10 hours a week where I'm not commuting where I was commuting before and luckily I've been able to continue to write and stuff I know that's not the case for everyone who's you know trying to be creative but I found it actually helpful because I have a bit more mental energy to just focus on that instead of rushing onto the tube and all the rest of it so yeah not too bad actually and obviously also the other thing about lockdown I think and this whole situation is it's opened up more opportunities in terms of being a, a more accessible to a wider range of people. So in, obviously we wished it hadn't happened, but there are some positives which we can take out of it. So that's good. Absolutely. And I've, I've been chatting to people from all over the world with this, that kind of ordinarily I wouldn't necessarily have been able to do if we were, we were doing a local show or people had to travel to London, for instance, to hear you speak. So um, I'm really glad we can talk to you. Congrats on your new book. It's all very exciting. In 2020, I imagine it was slightly different because no one kind of knew what to expect. But what's the process been like publishing a book in these? <laughs> yes, um, not, not exactly how I envisaged uh, my daily being to publish, publish. But yeah, I think you're right. I have to say, I think that the 2020 debuts have really been trailblazers for all of this. You know, they they were really having to sort of just very much think on their feet. And actually, it's really interesting because we have a sort of 2021 debut group mm-hmm. and we talk quite regularly with some of the 2020s. So they've kind of given us tips and ideas as well. So it's not as bad as it would have been. I, I suppose I made my peace with not being able to go into a bookshop on launch day. Yeah. Um, 
and um, you know just trying to make the most of it and and the thing about publishing and be, and having books out is it's not as if the book's just going to disappear in a couple of months. It's it's going to be out there for a long time. There'll be the paperback and so on. So I'm just trying to see the positives in it. But yeah, it has been interesting trying to navigate. And as I said, I mean, I think I would have expected maybe to have done some bookshop events and things like that. But obviously, a lot of those, including my launch party, are going to be online. And you just make a piece of it. And in a sense, I suppose being published is quite an emotional roller coaster. So again, I suppose the one good thing about it is you're not traveling all over the place and trying and getting tired out. You're just able to sort of just focus on the actual events, the actual publicity side of things as well. Mm, absolutely. And everyone's got lots of time to read now as well. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually. And you know, people are reading more books, which is mm. brilliant. And again, that's another positive that. There aren't that many positives with this. <laughs> yeah. well. We've got to find them where we can. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm interested to hear more about this kind of journey to publication. You started, you say, um, writing it on your commute, which is <laughs> incredibly disciplined. I think people who have all the time in the world find excuses of being too busy. <laughs> so kind of how's that process been? What's it been like? How did you find a publisher? All those bits between. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I... You know, I started writing again in my uh, late 30s and I actually just did a short creative writing course and I'd forgotten how much I loved it. So off the back of that, I thought, oh, maybe maybe I could write something. I didn't know how to write a novel, but I started to write short short stories and it kind of then evolved into the idea for Palolo Hill. And I suppose I was also inspired by the fact that, um, I mean, I read a lot of books set in other countries and obviously books set in India um, but there weren't any books about people from my background, so specifically East African Asians. And I'd also always been interested in the story of the Ugandan Asian expulsion. So, you know, people being given 90 days to leave the only homes that they had ever known, actually, in 1972. That just fascinated me. And I was really surprised, actually, that there hadn't been more books around that so that's what inspired me and then yeah so I tried to write on my commute I just you know I gave myself a small word word count a day um to be otherwise it's just sort of wasted time and you can be reading obviously and I, I read in the evenings instead but I just thought I'll use that time to write so I wrote a first draft and obviously a lot of the editing was done at home and that took about 18 months and then I thought okay maybe I should try and see if I can get a publisher or an agent rather. Um, so I started submitting to agents and I mean, there were a lot of rejections. I can't deny, you know, I think that's a right passage for any any uh, author really. Um, but I was lucky that um, through some shortlistings and competitions and things, some of the judges had asked to see the work and um, I had a, a few requests for the full manuscript. So as a result of that, I got two agent offers and my agent, Jenny Savile, um, who I was really pleased with, and she's been amazing. And then we went out to publishers and Picador picked it up. Um, dream come true, really, I have to say, because just I've read lots of books. I'm not just saying this, but I have read lots of Picador books over the years. I never really expected to be published by someone that, you know, a publisher like Picador. So, yeah, I mean, that took the whole process from writing to being published has taken six years and publishing isn't a fast industry at all. Um, my, my story was slightly slower than maybe some people's, but yeah, um, 
I think you have to have a lot of patience uh, to be an author. (laughs) Absolutely. And just also by the end of six years, things have changed. Some of the things you might have written or thought have changed. (laughs) Well, it was interesting, though, when I was writing the book, um, a lot of the themes, so, you know, home, belonging and things like that were playing out in the real world. So obviously Brexit, the rise of Trump. Uh, we had the Windrush scandal in the UK. Um, those things obviously brought to the fore a lot of the themes of the book. And it was a bit eerie in some ways because that's obviously what I try to explore is the Ugandan Asian uh, family in the book who um, are then forced to leave everything behind except their devastating secrets and and try to make it to the UK with British passports. So, and then some of them have never been to to the UK before so that whole dynamic was really interesting to explore and as I said reflected in some of the things that were happening in the real world and actually I think it's as topical as ever unfortunately unfortunately I suppose yeah I mean it's it's something that really struck me in the book was this sense of identity for instance the character of Marty Chand, I hope I'm pronouncing that right um who's spent uh his well, at least his children's lifetime in Uganda and still fully identifies as Indian, whereas these kids who are born in Uganda still feel um, linked to India. And then kind of this group of people that then are told, actually, you're not welcome here until the next place, just to be received by more people that don't really think they belong. And do you think we cling to the sense of origin or do you think it's something that we kind of only acknowledge once it's challenged or taken away from us yeah I think that's a really interesting question is it something I've tried to explore I think that yeah the, the it's it is quite interesting to look at the two generations so as you say Mastajan really does connect and and is still connected to India and that's where he wants to go straight away when he's expelled um whereas the some of the younger generation they don't know anything. They know India from afar. They know the UK from afar, but Uganda is really their only home. Um, so I think there is a sense of origin, but there's also that sense of, you know, the differences between those who've been brought up in a, a certain country. And it's the same for me. I was born in London and, you know, growing up sometimes in this playground and stuff, you know, people people tell you to go back to your own country. And and I know that for people of Indian origin, they would be thinking, well, it's my own country, India. But for me, my second home is Kenya in particular, where my mom's uh, family were brought up. And that's where we spent a lot of family holidays. But even then, I don't speak Swahili fluent. No, I only speak a few lines of it, to be honest. And I've never lived there before. So that was what was interesting to me is, is what is home for you? And, and how do you have those connections? And it's really interesting also, my mom has, been in the UK now for well 30 40 years she supports um the English cricket team now you know so so it's just all those things that it's very complex and I think that's the other thing it's like this idea of belonging and that you should just belong to one country for for some of us that won't be the case and for Jaya the matriarch she tries to almost absorb into her heart all the places she's been so she she is very much Indian she also absorbs Uganda into her heart and then she comes to the UK and tries to make the best of that so I I think that's the thing it's different for different people that's the other element of it and that's what I tried to explore in the book hopefully so yeah well you you definitely um get yeah get that sense of home and acceptance and 
wanting to make a home anywhere, a home kind of where the home is a place or whether it's people, um, it's all it's all delved into with great insight. But there's also another striking point for me in the book where they're leaving, they're about to um, go to the UK, those with British passports, and they're kind of looking around and thinking, who, who's going to remember me? Like, what? Who's going to write this down? What's um, what's going to happen? They can kind of see the history books, which are often the the English, French, German histories of their country. Um, certainly in a lot of African countries, uh, the local colonized communities aren't always reflected in the history books and yeah. I did feel that this book was kind of you giving a voice to a section of history that seems to have been overlooked. Yeah absolutely um, I mean I think you know oral traditions both in the in India and in Africa are quite uh, much more prevalent uh, historically and so there's that element so you know that's it's not necessarily how history is captured it's passed through generations so that was quite interesting to me but yes then there's obviously the colonial aspect and the fact that almost the history books start at the point that they've been colonized and and I suppose when I talked about you know it's through the character it talks about who will write our history I suppose that was me also sort of imposing myself a little bit into the story there where it is quite it's quite emotional actually it's quite sad that so many um, of my family stories haven't been captured and it's something I've been trying to do more of and other people like me from across, you know, East African backgrounds. And so I'm hoping that with this book and with subsequent books, I can uh, will capture elements of British Asian history. There's a lot of history that hasn't been talked about in fiction and that's quite sad to me in fiction and in fact in non-fiction so I really want to make sure we do capture that and we don't just move on and you know just sort of pretend that that never happened um I think there's lots of rich stories still to explore in that area so yeah that's what I was really trying to get across in this book yeah it, it does seem like publishing in general seems to be taking on the responsibility of giving more nuanced stories I think that um they've been kind of very linear tales of kind of the fact that British Asian is even a description when there's so many Asian countries and so many um, parts of Britain that can be explored. It's just the kind of the more nuanced the story, the the better, the more people can learn. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's quite interesting, actually. I remember when I was younger, my mum once, um, we had consensus forms and my mum was really keen that I wrote my background as East African British Asian. <laughs> where, where do you sort of draw that line? Because, you know, it could end up being a really long set of words. And and yes, you're absolutely right. You know, there will be uh, British Asians who have come from the, the subcontinent, obviously, um, but they may well have sort of travelled to various other places on the way. And that, that you know, primarily, I suppose I do feel British. That's it's my it's the language that I predominantly speak, obviously. I live here, I work here, everything, but I think it's lovely. It's lovely that my culture is sort of such an infused um, selection of different things. And that's the other thing uh, about East African Asians is they, they they went over with Gujarati food, but then it's infused with certain uh, East African um, ingredients like cassava or mogul. 
uh, or corn on the cob, which is also common in, in India, but you know they they use a lot more coconut, for example. The same with our language. So at home, some of our words are Swahili rather than Gujarati, and I didn't realize when I was growing up and speaking Gujarati that some of the words I was using were Swahili. And that's the thing; it makes our history a lot more richer. And I don't think that that's been portrayed in books. So that's what I was hoping to do with this. Well, I did sit with Google as my trusty companion for most <laughs> of the time because you just write about food so beautifully. I And food was a theme that I did kind of pick up on because food does have that kind of nostalgic transportational ability. Yeah. And uh, it was it was really lovely to kind of learn of all the different all the different spreads that were on. And then when they <laughs> arrive in Britain, the cornflakes as the comparison, it was just um, really beautifully woven into the story. Thank you. As as well as actually now you speak of it, the the languages. And so I, I come from South Africa where people drop kind of four or five words that actually aren't English into an English sentence quite happily. And also you don't really, sometimes I'll say a word that I didn't realize was Zulu or Afrikaans. I just, it's just a word for a thing. Yes. And you do um, interchange between Swahili, Gujarati and English. And is that something you just do conversationally then rather than, well, at, when you're speaking within your own family? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, even at home now with my parents, it's mainly English. They might re- reply in Gujarati, but I I can understand it luckily. And you know, I used to get sent to Gujarati school when I we was younger, and I used to hate it. But I'm so glad I went now. But yeah, but still, sometimes we'll be speaking Gujarati, and some English words will come in, or as I said, Swahili, and and vice versa. So, and and that's the thing you don't really think about it. And it's only in writing this I was thinking, oh, actually, and sometimes we might use a Hindi word as well. And then I think on the, the subject of food. I suppose there's two elements that to that and one is it's a way to connect to home even if you can't be at your you know the home of your heart I suppose so that that's why but also just when I read books I find it really frustrating when it just says and then they ate dinner and it moves on <laughs> what did they have <laughs> I must know <laughs> I suppose I'm an anthropologist at heart, I suppose. And, you know, food tells you so much about culture, about people, you know, about individuals and characters. You can learn a lot about um, a person from the things that they eat. Um, And I find that really interesting. Um, So, yeah, that's another reason that I I do try to, to reference that. And the other part of it is, I suppose, you know, a lot of Indian cuisine has made it into various books. But Gujarati and East African cuisine in particular is so specific. And not as well known, and I wanted to talk a bit about about those things as well. It's all really, yeah, really beautifully written. And have you you write as if you've been to Uganda? Have you have you spent a lot of time there? Yeah, it's quite interesting because when you know when you're first, you're writing your first novel, you're not really sure if it's going to get published. And I did think, oh, should I? Can I justify a trip to Uganda just for something that might never actually see the light of day? So the first couple of drafts, I mainly focused on obviously reading historical books, travel logs, street map and Google Earth are obviously <laughs> really handy. You can literally walk down most streets and buildings in anywhere in the world. And I definitely recommend it for early drafts or if you can't, especially now for writers who can't get to research somewhere in person. So I wrote the first draft, I think the first two drafts actually. And then I said, well, okay, I really do want to get this published. So I went over to Uganda uh, for a week and 
it was a bit eerie because obviously by then the drafts had come together quite a lot and it felt a bit like stepping into a country I'd been to before but I'd never visited I mean I had a lot of family holidays in Kenya and I spent quite a lot of time in Tanzania when I was much younger so there are some similarities but I'd never been to Uganda specifically and yeah it was just a bit creepy not creepy it was it was a lovely feeling but it did feel like I'd been to Uganda in a past life I suppose (laughs) And it all sort of came alive around me. But that said, there are certain details in the book that I wouldn't have been able to write unless I'd been there. So I think it was definitely a worthwhile trip. And even when I left, even though it had just been a week, I very much felt that wrench of leaving in the same way that I think, you know, if you'd lived there your whole life, you must feel even more strongly. So it was a really interesting experience. And I tried to obviously infuse those experiences into the, to the book as well. And any excuse really to travel. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. You did it just at the right time, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly that. But yeah, I definitely do recommend there are there are definitely other ways. And then, and again, food is another way. So making some of those recipes of, of other countries' food is quite an interesting way to sort of bring that to life in your writing as well. Mm, definitely. Well, your writing is so emotional and so I did wonder was it a, was it a hard book to write I mean the topics are quite devastating these people leaving their homes what, did you did you feel that kind of emotional connection to all of them like we do as a reader <laughs> um I know there are writers that even on their first draft they will be crying as they write um which sounds quite good in one sense but could, could probably be quite harrowing I don't seem to have that but once I read back, once I was reading one of the final uh, drafts, I did really feel that connection. And I'm surprised that that was the case, because by that point, you know, you've read your draft about 20, 30 times, and you're kind of a little bit sick of it. Um, But I did feel it at certain points, certain things that happened to Jaya in particular. And, you know, obviously this was devastating. I'm actually finding it more emotional now talking about the book. I suppose there's a bit of distance there and talking about the characters with a bit of distance. Um, I'm just realising really how how challenging that, I, I know it sounds crazy, but it's just how challenging it must have been. And maybe when you're in the middle of writing a book, you're researching it, you know, you are, you're doing a job as well as being creative. So that was quite interesting for me. And I, I do want to also say that I try to, as much as possible, bring some lightness to it, because I think even in the darkness, darkest moments, people somehow find humor and they find ways to connect with other people and and I also wanted to try and balance that portrayal you know not all English people are bad and not all Asians are good and you know there are there's there's different elements to everyone and I wanted to try and show as many different perspectives as possible which is why I use three points of view rather than than one to give that multifaceted look at what that what it's like to go through something like this. Yeah, and I think it reads right now um, very poignantly because people are so intolerant of others. That's a, I'm putting air quotes there for anyone listening to this, not watching this. And it's it's really good to kind of see the depth, what seems like someone just kind of being dim and not understanding what's going on. Actually, they're busy in the background translating it into four different languages and <laughs> people who've come and run factories in their own countries suddenly arriving and packing boxes in them instead Um, and I think that's really relevant now as as much as it was in the 70s when the book set 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and yeah, I think I mean a lot of Ugandan Asians were were middle class, you know, or at least most of them had uh, what we call houseboys or house girls um, in East Africa, I suppose. So, um, but yes, when they came here with you know fifty pounds each, I mean that works out about thousand pounds each in today's money. But if you think you know you've got to feed yourself, uh, find a home, all the rest of it, not a lot of money at all, and they had to leave everything. So. Yeah, um, unfortunately, like I said, it is quite topical. There are things that are going on across the world that are still reflecting in these themes. And, you know, I hope that I bring that to life. And it's surprising that actually probably anyone who's under 40, everyone I've spoken to, had no idea that this was going on, even that people have brought up and born in, in England, um, that this happened in the 1970s. And it's a part of British history. It's part of a lot of country's history you know that lots of people went to Canada obviously people went to India as well they, they were scattered all over the world sometimes families split up as well and again yeah that's that's very pertinent these, these people were refugees but perhaps not refugees as we would perceive them or how they're often portrayed in the media and that's the other thing is that you know you can't there's such refugee is such a loaded word and there are so many different facets to what a refugee might be and what they've come from and, you know, ultimately, however hard it was for the Andonesians, they didn't come from a war-torn country as such. You know, there, there were there were others that and are others who still continue to have a lot of those difficulties. So, mm. and, yeah. and though not all of them did, I mean, they're coming over at least with passports, kind of legally yeah. being entitled exactly. from that pre, pre-independence. Yes. Yeah, nationality, despite the fact that on arrival they weren't really treated like equals. But um. uh, This is it. Well, this is another reason why I think, you know, there are certain conversations going on, where I don't want to get overly political, but there are certain conversations going on about people rewriting British history because it's highlighting some of the more negative elements of colonial history. But actually it's not rewriting, it's just actually bringing <laughs> light things that actually happened. Um, and yeah, that'd be editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing about pre uh, well, colonial Uganda and lots of other countries that both the Asians and the Ugandans brought a value, lo- lots of value back to Britain, but that's not necessarily recognised. And so, mm. you know, it's not just that they were given British passports; they also, in return, returned wealth yeah. to the country. And it's that I try to look into that a bit more as well. Mm. Yeah, there was an exchange. And so I'd like to know now if you're working on anything new. Yeah, I am. Um, I am a bit superstitious because it's quite in early stages, um, but it will be sort of historical and set in the 20th century. That's as Ooh, much exciting. And it is multi-point of view again. So, um, But I've actually only got two points of view, um, or at least until my editor sees that. I don't know if my editor will <laughs> So uh, rather than three, because that was it was really interesting to write about different points of view, but characters. But it's obviously quite challenging as well because you're having to get into different people's heads and write as them and things like that. But yeah, so um, hope to be able to share more on that uh, soon, <laughs> but not quite yet. <laughs> and then lastly, um, the finishing note: you're obviously a reader based on the fact that you're a writer, but I also see through your socials that you're a big reader and I was wondering if you could tell us kind of what what was the first book you read what book inspired you to start writing and the most recent book you read that you just couldn't put down 
Yeah, okay. First book I read, um, I mean, I can't remember exactly, but I do know that as a child, I loved quite common books uh, for <laughs> children, particularly in the UK. I don't know if um, you had them growing up, but Spot the Dog and <laughs> The Hungry Caterpillar. I loved that it. it had pop-up bits. I loved that. Yeah. Um, so that was my first book. And uh, so what were you other? Could we be other Sorry, the, <laughs> a book that kind of inspired you to write. Yes. So I suppose I read a lot of books without realising that I was going to become a writer. Um, and it's only looking back that I've realised that they've inspired me. But I am very much inspired by um, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. I think it's really inventive and creative use of, of language. Small Island by Andrea Levy, which is, again, it's an immigrant uh, story. And I suppose it made me realise that I could write about those sorts of experiences and finally um I really love Sarah Waters stuff sorry I know it's more than one but Sarah Waters stuff because she writes about women's history in particular social history and I suppose that that is again that I'm really interested in and then yes yeah, sorry was there one more question yeah the last one was <laughs> the last book you read that you can put down oh gosh I've read so many recently <laughs> I will try to keep it to one I just <laughs> go to go two <laughs> okay, thank you thank you so much um, I loved Fiona Scarlett's Boys Don't Cry. That's out in uh, May and it's set on in working class Dublin. Uh, it's around a family. It's beautiful. It's quite heartbreaking, but it is gorgeous. And it's also very funny. And then the other one I would say is Catherine Menon's Fragile Monsters, um, which I think is coming out in April and has been raved about by Hilary Mantel and Colm Tobin. So, you know, a, a great pedigree. So yeah, they they were brilliant. I recommend those. Um, and they'll be out soon. Brilliant. Okay. So everyone can now add those to their list <laughs> and obviously add your book to their list. I hope so. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> so excited for the book to, to come out and for everyone else to get a chance to read it. And it's been so excellent chatting to you about it today. Thank you for coming on to Babel. And good luck with everything. Good luck with your new project. Good luck with the launches and the parties, the virtual ones, that is. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I look absolutely. forward to the next. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been really good fun yeah. talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Hi there. Thank you for tuning into Babel today. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the start, we're so happy to have you and hope you enjoy the arts and literature interviews available. This is a free platform to project the voices of those starting out and those who've spent years journeying to this point in their career. From the new to the renowned, the 60-year-old debut novelist to the 20-year-old musician, we want to babble with everyone. So get in touch if this is you or if you'd like to do some interviewing yourself. You'll find us on Twitter at babbleshow underscore on Instagram at Babbleshow and on www.babbleshow.com.